Hey, Paratopia, it's Jeff Ritzman. You hear that silence? You know what that means? There's no Jeremy Vaney this week. That's right, Jeremy Vaney, otherwise indisposed, out gallivanting around, having a great old time while I sit here in the hatch doing the show for you. He will be dragged to the phone lines for after chat, after the interview, and a good interview it is, and what I'm sorry Jeremy missed, our guest tonight, Dr. David Clark. You may recognize his name as he is in conjunction with the releases of the MOD UK UFO files that are still ongoing. Let me read you his bio quickly, and we'll get right into it. Dr. David Clark is a course leader and senior lecturer in journalism at Sheffield Hallam University, South Yorkshire, UK. Prior to teaching journalism skills, he worked as a news reporter for the Sheffield Star and the Yorkshire Post, covering a wide range of general news and crime stories. Since 2008, he's been working with the National Archives as their external consultant for the ongoing release of UFO files created by Britain's Ministry of Defense. His books include The UFO Files, The Inside Story of Real-Life Sightings, The Angel of Mons, Phantom Soldiers and Ghostly Guardians, Supernatural Peak District, The UFOs That Never Were, co-authored by Jenny Randalls and Andy Roberts. All of the following, by the way, co-authored by Andy Roberts. Out of the Shadows, UFOs, The Establishment and the Official Cover-Up, Flying Saucerers, The Social History of Ufology, Twilight of the Celtic Gods, and Phantoms of the Sky, UFOs, A Modern Myth. Paratopia, please help me welcome Dr. David Clark. Dr. Clark, thank you for coming on the show this week. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to refer to you as David <laughs> throughout the interview. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, Whatever you like. But there you go. And, and I guess the first question would be, and, and this is kind of a cliche question, but um, I'm always kind of interested in this when I talk to folks like you. What first drew you into this? Uh, at all, I mean, it, it, and you don't just study UFOs, you also have kind of dabbled around in ghosts and that sort of thing. I mean, what brought you to the paranormal field in general? Well, it's a very good question, and uh, the answer I'm going to give is that uh, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, I, I've been fascinated by it. And uh, one thing, a couple of things I would pick out is um, when I was very, very young, I'd, uh, my grandparents used to. Uh, he used to tell me stories in the classic sort of from the your grandmother's knee sort of thing about um, ghosts that used to haunt um, the city where I was born, sort of back in the Victorian period. And I'm sure quite a few of your listeners will have heard of um, a being called Springheel Jack. That ring any bells? Um, that was one of the um, that was one of the stories that that was told. I mean, most people know that. Um, there was this fabulous creature that um, called Springheel Jack that, um, that appeared in Victorian England around the time the Duke of Wellington was Prime Minister, and uh, and uh, he was supposed to sort of like jump from building to building, and he had glowing eyes and claws, metal claws on his hands, and he used to terrify people. Well, that that was a, a story in London, but there were other towns and cities around England that had similar stories, and um, you know I, I actually heard about this from my grandparents because there was a similar scare in um, in Sheffield, where I live, in, um, I think it was the 1870s, it was actually before their time, it was their parents who, who knew about this, but they passed it on to me, and I was, at the time, I was a big, um, very into uh, comics, I was reading Superman and Spider-Man and all that kind of thing, so I just thought, wow, this is fantastic, and I just carried on from there, really, so that's what got me interested in the sort of this, this paranormal side and the, the folklore side, and I would say on, on, um, on the subject of 
of UFOs and flying saucers, what um, what really got my interest and focused my interest was uh, was going to see the uh, the Steven Spielberg film Close Encounters of the Third Kind in uh, what would it have been 1977 or 78? I must have been around 14 years old then, and I just remember th thinking, oh wow, this is fantastic. And <laughs> from that point onwards, I. I for a few years, I just uh, believed, um, like in Alice in Wonderland, six impossible things before breakfast, and I read all the um, the paperbacks on UFOs that were in the bookshops at that time, and believed in the Bermuda Triangle, and believed in the mystery of Atlantis, and all those things. <laughs> so right. that's the origins. Right. Well, I, I can imagine. Uh, well, let me ask you this: How many times did you wake uh, Grandma and Grandpa up after they told you that story when you spent the night there? <laughs> no, I think they were. I think they got they got very tired of me asking them the same questions. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, any in your history? Uh, any direct experience with the paranormal at all? I mean, any UFO sightings or, or weird synchronicities, that sort of thing? Um. <laughs> Nothing, nothing outstanding. I, I, when, when I was a child, the family used to go out um, to a place on the east coast of um, Yorkshire, where the, where we had a like a, a mobile home sort of thing, where we'd go fishing and and um, it was really well about as remote as you can get in England, which is not very remote. And I remember one night seeing a really brilliant sort of light streaking across the sky and sort of appearing and disappearing. This is a this was before. I got interested in UFOs, and I, I remember thinking that, that was something really, really weird. But, I mean, at the time, I can't have been more than nine or ten years old, and thinking about it in retrospect, it, it you know, almost certainly was some kind of aircraft or, um, I don't know, possibly a, a fireball or something of that kind. Right. That's the only thing I can say that I definitely could not identify, but um, I've seen lots of other things since, and particularly, um, I don't know whether you have the same thing um, in your country, but we've, we've got this craze for um, people letting off um, what, are, what we call Chinese lanterns, which is a, a craze that's been imported from the Far East, and uh, birthday parties and weddings, so they're, they're like mini hot air balloons, and people send them up in flotillas, mm. and um, <clears throat> particularly now at Christmas and um, what we call bonfire night here on the 5th of November, and um, on New Year's Eve, the, literally the sky is full of these things. Wow. <laughs> and, and initially, when they were when they were quite sort of uh, nobody had seen them before. The newspapers were full of um, stories about you know is this a uh, flying saucer invasion fleet, and, and we don't see those headlines anymore. Right, right. Or I, I guess we could fast forward a little bit to when you did become somewhat interested in UFOs. I mean, uh, in the UK, back that far. Was it still the kind of thing that we face here in the States, even yet today, the, the stigma of ridicule and that sort of thing? Was that even prevalent uh, back when you were young in the UK? I don't, I've, never, I've never found any kind of ridicule of any kind. Hmm. This, is, this is one thing that puzzles me. I, I hear a lot of these things about, oh, yeah, people have had these experiences, but they don't speak about them because of the ridicule. But I've, I've never come across any examples of this over here you know i mean yeah of course people there are people who think if you are interested in this subject you know you're nuts or, or there's something not quite right about but I, i've never found that at all and I, I i just don't i don't think it's a factor i think it's a factor that's overplayed by a lot of the ufo proponents as, as to why why won't anyone take us seriously this kind of thing you know why do people laugh at us but you know, if I don't, I don't think you're going to change people's attitudes um, overnight. And uh, you know, I, I think a lot of these people who laugh, 
if you question them carefully about what other bizarre things that they believed in, you know, are they religious? Right. You know, what else do they believe in? You, you, you could probably turn it around and laugh at them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I'm finding these, these days that, you know, people seem to be a little bit more curious than, than the snicker factor definitely has gone down, I think, a little mm. bit, at, at least to me in the past, you know, 20 years. Uh, yeah, seems. I mean, I certainly get it as an academic. You know, people oh, sort yeah. of people sort of think. You know, why are you wasting your time chasing little green men? You know, it's, it's career suicide. You know, what? Why? Why? Do, why are you doing research on this area when you could do something where you know you you would be taken seriously and you could make a lot of money and and you know, get a lot of prestige? You know, you, you're in danger of putting you putting yourself in it. In, in, in a in a field where no one is going to take you seriously as an academic. But I just think, well, you know, it's what I'm interested in, and I think it's it's important, and whether whether these things exist or not, it's an interesting um, human phenomenon in the same way that uh, any other yeah. aspect of anthropology or sociology is important. So, so you know, I, I, my, my, my sort of approach is, is to fight against this sneaker factor in which, whatever form it takes. Right. I, I think if anyone does a search on your name on the internet, uh, one of the things that they'll come across is the uh, the psycho psychosocial hypothesis, which yeah. is something that on this show, I mean, we've talked about. Uh, well, at least in my opinion, the ludicrousy of the ETH as it applies to what we refer to as the UFO enigma, uh, and certainly when we met on UFO updates list, we. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have to go there, but um, I mean, we, we've seen the resistance to all sorts of different ideas, whatever they might be, if they're not the ETH. I mean, certainly there's a, there's a resistance to that. Uh, but the psychosocial uh, hypothesis is not something that we've talked about on here. And seeing as you're like the, uh, you know, one of the main people involved in that, uh, if not the only one that I found. Can you explain to us, uh, in base terms, what that hypothesis is and what the implications are? Yeah, I'm, first of all, I'm not even quite sure it is a hypothesis. It's, it's a whole collection of different um, approaches to interpreting people people's experiences. And I think the ba- the, the base thing that I would say is people are are, are, are a very they don't really understand it and I think the reactions that we get from a lot of the uh, people who subscribe to the ETH suggest to me that they're very insecure about what they actually believe and they don't like any other um, way of um, of approaching the um, the the, uh, the, da- the data that we're looking at. And to me, I would summarise the psychosocial hypothesis, if there is such a thing, as simply looking at the phenomenon from a human perspective. Because the, the, the way I look at it is, um, there is no proof, there is no evidence of any visits from extraterrestrials. Now, we could debate that all afternoon, but the, we would not be even discussing the subject if that evidence was here. Right. You know, that would be, that would be solved. They would be, they wouldn't even be called UFOs because we would know they would be alien spacecraft, so there'd be no reason to call them UFOs. Right. You're on the right show. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I take it from that. I mean, and, and everybody's got a different level of, um, at which they accept something as being real or, un- or, or not real. And to me, I've got a very high um, hurdle that, that the uh, that I have to put the, um, the the claims they have to get over that that hurdle before I can accept that um, that something is proven. And, I, and my 
if you look at the um, the whole subject and, and the evidence that's been put forward, there is nothing that's been put forward that is, that, that is convincing evidence of an, a visit from an extraterrestrial spaceship. So, to me, I just think, what is the point then of wasting time and energy examining that aspect of it? Because there is no evidence. What we do have evidence for are literally tens of thousands of people who claim that they've had experiences and they most of them definitely have had an experience of some kind. To me, in the absence of any definitive evidence for ETs, and it's not just ETs, you, could also, you can also include in that you know, any other kind of supernatural um, explanation, you know, visitors from, out, from, uh, from other dimensions or time travelers, all equally unprovable. Right. What, what is the common factor that, that, that lies behind all these experiences? It's the human being who has the experience. We can actually talk to these people, or most, some of them anyway. You know, so to me, as, um, as somebody with a background in journalism, a background in folklore, that, that is the most interesting part of it. And, and to be absolutely honest, I don't know what the explanation is. I don't know whether there are aliens that, that lie behind any of these experiences. And quite frankly, I don't care. You know, there's, there's, there's plenty of other people who, who are fascinated by the aspects of it. Let them, let them carry on. My interest is in the people themselves and the experiences, which is other people seem, seem to find it very, very difficult to look at it from that point of view. And I find it very frustrating that, that we seem to be locked in this tired debate. Uh, do these things come from outer space or is it all a load of nonsense and we seem to be getting more and more polarized that there's only two possible views you can hold either we're being visited by aliens or you are a skeptic stroke debunker there is no gray area in between and it seems that even having a discussion particularly on the internet and particularly on places like ufo updates you're forced to take one of those diametrically opposed points of view. You, you cannot argue a third way. There is no other way of looking at it. Either you're for us or you're against us. Either you believe in ET or you're, you're one of these nasty, horrible debunkers who are paid by the government to, to say that these things don't exist. And, you know, I just, I just opt out of that debate because I just think this is going nowhere. You will never prove anything. You'll never learn anything taking that, um, taking that, that viewpoint. So, I probably haven't explained the psychosocial <laughs> hypothesis, <laughs> but I've, I've set the context for it. And, yeah. and I, think, I think to say what, what, what I'm trying to say about the psychosocial hypothesis, I, what I'm trying to say is, is that whatever is the source of these experiences, there's no doubt that people have extra, what I would call extraordinary ex experiences. Now, the source of an extraordinary experience could simply be um, you know, a plastic bag being blown by the wind that somebody, whilst driving a car, suddenly sees this thing waft across the windscreen and they think, oh my God, that is a UFO. And they have had a UFO experience, even though it's been caused by a plastic bag. And to me, that is an extraordinary experience. Why did they think it was a UFO? And for that moment, before they realized that it was a plastic bag, to them it was a UFO. So they had an experience that is a genuine experience, might have been a mistake, but it was still an experience. And to me, it would be equally the same if that object that they saw whilst driving was an alien spacecraft. It's still an experience they've had. And that's, that's the bit that I'm interested in. And, and what I'm interested in is, is, is the, the point at which something that is quite ordinary, such as a star, a bright planet, uh, an aircraft, that in normal circumstances, if someone saw it, they would just say, oh, that's a planet, that's a, that's a bright star. 
But we know from literally hundreds, if not thousands of examples, that lots of times people have seen things that are quite ordinary and have interpreted them as extraordinary things due to the circumstances in which they've been seen. Because, for example, if you see a bright um, fireball meteor, um, most people would not know what that was. And they would see it uh, fleetingly, without any warning, suddenly this thing would just suddenly appear, zoom across the sky, they'd be absolutely stunned, and I've seen these things myself, and I know what they are, and I've been taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, they are, they are, at that moment, they see it. Before they've been, in, you know, logged on and, or asked for an explanation from somebody, they have had a UFO experience. Yeah. That to me is the interesting bit. It's the point at which ordinary becomes extraordinary, and then when it's explained, it's back to ordinary again. That's <laughs> right. the bit that uh, fascinates me. That is the psychosocial hypothesis, effectively the basis of it. It's not. It's not saying that people are liars. It's not saying that people are gullible. It's not saying that people don't know what they're seeing. You know, it, it's simply looking at the experience, the human-centered part of the experience. I mean, some people are liars. There are people out there who who go out and deliberately deceive people just for the fun of it, no doubt about that. Um, But the vast majority of people, and most um, PSHs, I suppose you'd call them, psychosocial hypotheses, (laughs) I don't know what name you'd use, (laughs) would agree on that point. But we we don't all hold the same views. It's a broad church. Well, I mean, when we're talking about something, I mean, of course, we're going to go from the standpoint, at least around here we do, that that everything is 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 about perception. I mean, I've talked about Ooh. the nature of perception for a very long time in this, and and back in the day in the late '80s, early '90s, when I started talking about, I had a particular case um, towards the Maryland Pennsylvania line, where we had uh, three witnesses to a very strange structured object, and two of them saw exactly the same thing, and the third saw something so completely removed and different that uh, I could not explain that. I could not say why. Um, all standing from relatively the same vantage point, the same front yard. It wasn't as yeah. if they were a mile apart. I mean, this is something we've talked about quite a bit on here, that whatever, if if taking that there is a phenomena that is possibly external from us, it, it does seem to have the ability to play around with how we perceive it. Would you disagree or agree with that? Well, I don't think there is a phenomenon because a phenomenon implies one thing that creates UFO experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the totality of the evidence, what there is are lots of phenomena as opposed to a phenomenon, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Because, Because we know that a whole range of things create UFO experiences from um, quite ordinary things, like I said, aircraft, um, balloons, um, birds, um, and very few of those things are linked to each other. And yet, whenever they are seen and described and then appear in newspapers and in books, they are described as UFOs, as if it's one thing that's creating those experiences. That, that's the way I look at it. So you it, It's only through culture, it's only through the media and through the fact that ufology exists that lots of things that, that are unrelated, that people see in odd situations, become UFOs. And there's often this thing that's sort of like, oh, yeah, but they're the things that we can explain. Once you've removed all the IFOs from the um, equation, we are left with something called a UFO that is the one that is one thing that's either something comes from outer space or from another dimension that is creating all the real UFO sightings. Well, 
that to me it doesn't make any sense at all because if the vast majority, i.e. 95 percent of the things we know are we can trace to something ordinary are being created by lots of different things, then why do we think that once we've explained those, the things that can't be identified are all being caused by one specific thing? Do you see what, you see what I mean? So I think yeah. that... So, so what you're saying is that those, that, you know, that remaining small percentage, that core that everyone ever, uh, you know, always talks about, you're saying that uh, essentially those are just the ones we, we not, haven't necessarily found an answer for. Yes. And I think the ones that we that we haven't found an answer for, there isn't necessarily one answer for them. I see. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Right, right. So I, I think that the residue isn't being caused by alien spacecraft or isn't being caused by um, goblins or isn't being caused by, uh, you know, time travelers. I think if, if you looked at that residue of unexplained cases and you actually, you actually looked and broke them down into the constituents, it would be obvious even without doing this in any great depth, that it's not one thing that's causing those experiences. It's a whole range of things. Because what you've got in there, you've got you've got odd things seen on radar. You've got visual sightings, often of objects that are completely different. If you look at each di- um, description, you know there are lights, there are solid objects, there are all different shaped objects moving in lots of different bizarre ways. You've you've got uh, also people who claim they've had telepathic contact with aliens or people who think that they've been abducted, that kind of thing. So you cannot say that all those things are necessarily related. They could all be caused by lots of different things, some of which will be um, quite ordinary things. And I'm quite prepared um, to say that some of the other um, experiences could be quite extraordinary things, things that we just simply cannot explain and may never be able to explain that aren't necessarily um, caused by extraterrestrials. Right. So you don't necessarily say that there's nothing to this at all, or that everything is explainable. You're willing to accept that there's a absolutely that there's something unknown about what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think I think you're in danger of coming over as a very arrogant person if you just say I can explain everything, which is I think the, the problem where some of these real you know debunkers who, who just simply say oh science can explain everything and anything we can't explain given enough time you know we will be able to explain i, I just think that's that's a very bizarre position to take and uh, I, I just think you know i believe that um, there will always be things that we will never be able to explain and some of them will be ufo type experiences i mean going from the whole social aspect of this uh or or the uh the behavioral aspects of this. I mean, on this show, at least my co-host and I, uh, I would say for at least the past X amount of months, uh, have been rather embroiled in this whole thing regarding the abduction phenomena of, of which both of us are experiencers, I should say. Mm. However, you know, I've long had a bad taste in my mouth over the use of regression hypnotherapy um, some of the methodologies that are used in studying people who've had these experiences, so on and so forth. We went through the whole nine yards of getting, you know, an, an accredited uh, psychologist who has written books upon the, the notion that there is a psychological um, trash can uh, in which, you know, this regression hypnotherapy is very dangerous, is is unreliable, is uh, for, for lack of a better word, is really changing who people are by changing memories or confabulation of memories. This has garnered us, as you can imagine, 
you know, the title of government agent, debunker, um, you know, everything else. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think we're so dissimilar, at least in that way. I have said that the reason for that, you know, we've, we've both experienced the, the venomous nature of trying to explain this in different ways or trying to reassess how cases are studied, uh, how they're approached and how they're handled. I've said essentially that it's not just when you when you look at abduction research and you question how reliable hypnosis is, uh, you you show what the problems are. You're not only tackling that portion of the study, but you're also kind of pulling the Jenga block out of everyone who's built upon that who may not be involved in abduction research. Do you find that to be one of the leading reasons why there's so much resistance? To all this is is because it is really a house of cards that, you know, don't get too close and don't pull on too many loose ends or the whole thing comes crumbling down. Yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess um, I'd say that I don't know. I've not had a lot of involvement in the the abduction side of the phenomenon, but uh, just looking at it again from the point of a point point of view of a folklorist, to me, it's just. Again, it's impossible to escape from this, um, in this, this, this sort of um, the way of interpreting these experiences that is part of the culture in which we live. We live in a space age culture, and anybody who has a bizarre experience of missing time or, you know, the classic sort of symptoms that are associated with abductions, and the very word abductions puts a, a value on what has happened to somebody. And the, the 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 research that I've done and the people that I've spoken to, a lot of people aren't necessarily saying that they think they've been abducted by aliens. They have had a bizarre, extraordinary experience. And where do you go to in our modern Western society um, to find answers to that? If you went back hundreds and hundreds of years, um, you would you would go to someone, a priest or a shaman or something of that kind. And your experience will be explained in a completely different context, either as, you know, you've had some kind of religious experience or you've been taken by the fairies or the little folk or something of that kind. And, you know, I, I just think you've got to, you've got to, you've got to interpret it in, in that broader context that people have always had these experiences. You go back to the, to the biblical times. You know, there are people there having visions and, you know, Ezekiel and all that, all that side of things. You know, and I think people just need to take a broader perspective of it. You know, the, the, the whole idea that, the, 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 that these, what lies behind this are alien creatures or whatever is, is a completely cultural product of the last 20, 30, 40 years. You know, when you look at it in a, in a broader context, you see that uh, there's absolutely nothing new and nothing unusual about these uh, experiences. And, and, and in the past, people could have them and people were encouraged to have them. It's only seen as unusual now because, because uh, that side of human uh, existence and spirituality has been sidelined. Hmm. Well, when we Go had uh, Jacques Vallée on the show um, about his book, Wonders in the Sky, which is taking UFO sightings back uh, before re- recorded flight, essentially, you know the reports that that are entailed in there. That I have to say, in in some respects, I see as less than convincing to me that they represent the UFO phenomena. Not not a lot of them, but there are a few. And, mm. and one of the things that you come across in there, which Jeremy and I both found really interesting, was you'll have the the sightings that are the disc, the cylinder. Uh, this sort of thing, 
And then you'll have these sightings of <laughs> soldiers in the clouds uh, fighting a battle. And, and this is seen by more than one person. Ooh. That kind of thing, I question whether or not that is a, a yarn uh, that's just gotten legs and has you know, been recorded as some kind of fact. And perhaps we're misinterpreting this. Who knows? But when you're talking about the disc, the cylinder, you know, things that are not so dissimilar to what we're seeing today, how do you kind of fit that into a misperception or an explainable phenomenon? Well, I, I, I think possibly what's being seen there is, is some kind of natural um, or celestial phenomenon. And lots of those stories about armies fighting in the sky. Um, I can't, I can't think of one in particular, but I certainly read um, descriptions of those where they have actually been explained as, as celestial phenomena of one kind or other, like the aurora displays of the aurora, uh -huh. for instance. Um, so I think again, it's a case of people interpreting things, odd things in the sky, in in terms of which the, the, the that particular culture in which they're living can understand. I mean, and, and another good example of that, more recent example, are the uh, the sightings um, in um, in North America in 1896 and 1897 of the phantom airships, and we had a similar um, flap of sightings in in England in 1909, 1913, and very similar cylindrical objects being seen at night with searchlights and you know the similar descriptions to um, to what we get with um, UFOs today. But there's no, if you, if you look at the, the, um, the accounts and the way the newspapers covered, covered those sightings at the time, there was no, well, certainly not in, in the European ones, there was no suggestion that these things were, were extraterrestrial visitors. At the time, we were, we were in the run-up to a, uh, the First World War. We expected the Germans to be sending over um, airships, air, um, Zeppelin um, airships, to, to, um, to spy on the coastline and to, and to, um, for future bombing raids. And so people were were, um, were anxious about that. They were expecting those things to happen. So when something odd was seen in the sky, they interpreted it as being, it's the Germans. Right. So a very similar thing is going on today in that people, every time they, they switch on TV and there's a UFO documentary or they, they open a newspaper and there's a story about aliens, they're out, uh, they're out on a the night, they see an odd light. Well, how do they interpret it? You know, they're going to think, ah, it must be one of those UFOs. So right. you, you're dragged into what culture and media is, are saying, and you become part of that because we can't escape it. And that has always been the, the, the background um, context in which people have, have seen and interpreted things in the sky. Whichever, however, however far back or, or, or modern you, you, you choose your examples. We've also had, uh, say, Ted Phillips on the show, who's done a lot of work in the way of uh, landing trace case stuff or physical, you know, interactions with uh, with UFOs, and he's he's studied this for years and years and years, and has thousands of cases under his belt of uh, of of interesting phenomena as far as you know effects on the ground. Uh, and at one point, I think I heard him mention, possibly on another show, that. Based on the reaction of the ground or the trees or or the, the pattern of uh, depressions in the ground, what have you, before the witness would even be able to tell him what the craft was, he already had it, you know, pegged what it was, what they saw, roundabout. What does something like that do for you? I mean, I've personally said that, you know, that doesn't really prove anything to me, and I know a lot of people don't understand that, but that doesn't. That doesn't say to me that this is extraterrestrial. It doesn't say to me anything other than 
this person had an unusual experience and there's an effect on the ground that may or may not be related. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, I remember having debates with Stanton Friedman about this, and, and he, he always holds up Ted Phillips' ground traces catalog as, as, as that's, that's it, you know, this is the proof, you know. Right. There, are, there are solid objects coming here and leaving traces on the ground, but... I agree with you. It just does not stand up to scrutiny, and it's people who draw these vast catalogues. To me, it's like people who collect butterflies or matchboxes. You know, and and if you look at every single one of those examples in those catalogues, very very few of them. When you actually take it, take one of them, and you put it under scrutiny, very very few of them stand up to scrutiny. And a lot of it is just um, anecdotes that have been picked up, that have been um, lifted from UFO literature which in the literature itself was based upon things that have never been properly investigated, that have just been um, sourced from, say, newspaper cuttings that may have been a hoax, that may have been, may not actually have accurately described what was supposed to have gone on in the first place. So when you actually look at some of these catalogues, they don't stand up to a moment's scrutiny. And to say that, and to suggest that, like, you know, something, some marks on the ground have been left, therefore those things... Uh, have been caused by a solid flying object is nonsense. I mean, just to take one example from a very well-known example, the Rendlesham Forest incident, for instance. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, all all the um, so-called physical evidence that was supposedly left by the UFO in Rendlesham Forest, if if you take each section alone, you can demolish every single one of those things. The, the claim that Nick Pope constantly makes about there being higher than expected levels of radiation is complete nonsense. There, there was no higher than normal levels of radiation. It was completely normal, what you would expect in a pine forest. Wow, see, that's, um, that's something we always hear about. You know? Well, yes, but it's wrong. You know, and this, <laughs> this is what I don't get. The, 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 these, these stories like that, once someone, because it's Nick Pope that's saying it, therefore it must be true. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at the evidence, if you go on even Ridpath's um, website, have a look at what, what, what he says about it. There's absolutely nothing unusual about those um, radiation levels. And, and at the end of the day, if you go to Rendlesham Forest now, it's, it's, um, it's a picnic area. There are people walking around in Rendlesham Forest. I, I just find it impossible to believe that if there was unusual levels of radiation there, that it would be opened by the Forestry Commission and there'd be children playing there today. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Well, the you know, thing, the thing if, that if, always... if there was any kind of unusual radiation in Rendlesham Forest, you know, you would be able to go there today with a Geiger counter and you'd be able to detect it. Right. Radiation does not go away. Well, well, well yeah, yeah, there's that, and there's the thing that I've always thought about when it comes to that is uh, Colonel Holt's uh, recording. I mean, how much higher does it have to be to erase a tape? Well, yeah, I mean, and, but not just not just the not just the radiation. If you listen to the tape, he's talking about, oh yes, we can see these trees with these unusual marks on them, and that then has been taken to mean they were caused by a UFO. Right. Well, the, the forest of Vince Thurkettle, who I know quite well, who actually lived in the forest at the time, he actually made those marks. Huh? They were marks that they made on the trees that to indicate which trees were to be felled. They were the marks that Colonel Holt was examining, that Colonel Holt was thinking wow. had been caused by a UFO. Wow. You know, but how you get this over to people who are absolutely convinced that something landed there and caused those marks is, is, is very, very difficult. Once people have become entrenched in that belief, you know, and it must yeah. be true because Nick Pope has said so, and Nick Pope works for the government. Well, interestingly... Um, Usually, if somebody works for the government, that that usually is a sign that people will then say we shouldn't trust them. 
Well, how is it then that Nick Pope, who, who used to work for the government, we can trust right. what he said? Yeah. To me, that is a complete contradiction. Well, well, there's plenty of those around, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. Uh, well, I mean, let's let's talk about uh, Bent Waters for a second. I mean, mm. let, let's look at um, uh, Jim Peniston. You know, who, you know, according to him, he laid hands on this strange object in the woods that was landed, and then it flew away. And I mean, I have to be honest with you. You know, Rendlesham has been one of my uh, kind of one of my cases where I said this is a really interesting one to me, and, and I've long held that that thought uh, for years. And it wasn't until recently, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because maybe I've missed something here, but. I never remember up until the 30th anniversary in this this big uh, hubbub nowadays. Well, I never remember anything about binary numbers being transmitted to anyone. Well, exactly. That sort yeah. of thing. All of this stuff seems to be coming out, and so you know, I've had this secret frown on my face about it uh, ever since that news came out. And I had talked to Jim about coming on the show before all of that had had transpired out in the public. But but there's somebody who says they've laid hands on this thing and they they wrote down. The symbology that was uh, etched onto this thing, and what do you say to that? Well, I'm, I, I don't want to. Uh, this is a difficult one because if he, he's saying that now, but, he, but at the time it happened, and within a couple of days of it happening, he was interviewed by his commanding officer Ted Conrad, and he didn't mention any of this at all. Right. There, and, and so this this thing about him approaching it and touching the 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 this so-called object didn't emerge until years later. And his, um, his sidekick, um, John Burroughs, who was there standing next to him, as far as I'm aware, even to this day, he doesn't remember any of that. Right. He yeah. says all he, all he saw were lies. So therefore, you, you know, you were going earlier on, you, you referred to cases where you've got three people standing in the same position who all see something different. Uh-huh. It, it's a similar case. And, and I think what we've got here is embellishment. I think we've got someone... And Penniston's not the only one who's doing this. Holt's doing doing it as well. It, they've become so wrapped up in the story, and it's become so big that they can't lose face by by thinking, hmm, perhaps it wasn't like that. Perhaps you know it was just the light that we saw. I think once people get onto the lecture circuit and they're being they're being sort of encouraged by people who who, are, who have got something to make out of the subject. It's, it's in their interest for there to be mystery. Right. And, you know, one, once you get onto this circuit where you're going from one UFO conference to another and you're meeting people who believe in the most bizarre and strange things, it's very, very easy to get sucked into that and for the story to to become more and more exciting and more and more sensational because, because that's the way human beings behave. I mean... In, on the one hand, I'm saying that, but on the other hand, I do think, <clears throat> in fact, there's no doubt about it in my mind, that those two men had an extraordinary experience of some kind. But that doesn't mean to say that you can't have an extraordinary experience and then you can go on to embellish that story. Right. And we, we, it's, it's, it's a well-known thing that the more people tell a story, the more it improves, the more details get added to it, the more things that don't necessarily fit with it being a satisfying story for the audience get left out. Right. You know, so the very fact, if you go to their original statements that they gave to, to Charles Holt um, back in, um, was it January 1981, they make it very clear that after seeing these lights, they then uh, ended up seeing another flashing light, which they pursued through the forest for an extended period of time, only to realize it was a lighthouse. 
Okay. That is in their original stories. That fact has been very carefully left out of the story as they tell it now. And that is a well-known phenomenon. This is where folklore comes in, in that all the stories um, that become folk tales, like, you know, Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk or... You know, all those stories that we all know from childhood, they will have begun as a story that someone has told to someone else. And the more that gets passed on, the more details of that story that don't quite make it a satisfying story are left out. And the other details are added that make it more interesting, that make people remember it. And that's how things become folklore and folk, that's how folk tales come into existence. And, uh, you know, if we can fast forward another five or six hundred years time and, I, and you said to me what do you think of John, Jim Penniston's story it'll probably be unrecognizable to the one that you've just described <laughs> yeah yeah well uh, yeah I mean it's, it's a valid point I mean um, going forward a little bit what uh, what about uh, Colonel Halt I mean there's the guy who said you know along with other people there was a light in the sky that threw down pencil like beams uh, at their feet you know has he embellished that sort of thing in your opinion I mean is that where that's coming from well, to me, as I always go on primary sources and primary documents, and to me, the most important primary document is the, is the memo that um, he filled out that was sent to the Ministry of Defence in 1980. And, the, and if you read that, he, the, the memo is entitled um, Unusual Lights. The memo is not entitled Aliens Visited um, This Air Base and Shone Lights Onto the Weapons Storage Area. <laughs> right. That, to me, says it all. And if he, I mean, he's now saying that, yes, this thing hovered over the weapons storage area where it's implied that there were nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera, and lights were seen coming down on these things. Well, if he seriously believed that at the time, why did he not tell his superior, Colonel Conrad, and why did he not flag it up to the RAF immediately that this was a threat to a frontline NATO base, get your aircraft scrambled, there's something going on? He didn't. He, wait, he, he went back home, he went to bed while all this was going on. You can only assume that on, from the tape itself. Mm. He says at the end of the tape, we're going back to the base at 3 o'clock in the morning, the lights are still in the sky. So <laughs> presumably he went home, went to bed, while the aliens were shining lights on the weapon storage area. Now, to me, that just does not make any sense at all. <laughs> and then, not only did he not do anything um, immediately afterwards, he waited two weeks before the British base commander came back and popped into his office and said, oh, by the way, um, Don, while you were away for Christmas holidays, the aliens landed. <laughs> but I didn't think to tell anybody at the time. Right. <laughs> now, right. You, can, you can interpret it as, oh, yeah, there's a huge cover-up going on, or you can interpret it as being, that's what happened. And the British government's attitude is, if this guy, Charles Holt, seriously believed there was a threat, that something was going on that, that um, you know, could have been a threat to the defences of the country, why did he wait two weeks to tell us about it? Well, yeah, that would be that would be the, the to me that would that's the line of demarcation right there. Yeah, it, I mean, and, and that is need, it. I mean, if you're yeah, if that, you're out there is, and you yeah, and you see this, that is the crux of the matter. Yeah, you know, it's pointless getting bogged down with all this stuff about oh, somebody said ten, twenty years later that they'd touched it and that this, that, and the other had gone on. Right. The most important thing is what he put in that memo to the British Ministry of Defence, and the fact is he did not put in that memo that he'd seen an object hovering over a, a, um, a weapons storage area where there were nuclear weapons shining lights onto it. He didn't put in there that, um, you know, that he felt that these objects were extraterrestrial, there was no other way of explaining them, and that some action needed to be taken immediately. He waited two weeks to send it. Hmm. 
that to me demolishes the whole story right from the very beginning because if he if he thought something as, as serious as what is now being alleged had happened he would not have waited that long to have taken action yeah i mean certainly when you're standing out there and, and you're, you're seeing just what you said you know these things are shining lights uh, uh, on a nuclear facility <sighs> Really, you're going to keep your mouth shut about that? Well, exactly. And you don't I mean, even know what it is. I mean, that's yeah, the it, problem. It, it's claimed that there were something like uh, Jim Penniston claims that there was like eighty or a hundred people who witnessed this. Well, that is patent nonsense. Where who are all these eighty to to a hundred people? The only people who are saying that are three people, yeah. maybe four or five. That's a push. Yeah, and, and Ted, Ted Conrad, who was the base commander, he was in direct radio contact with Colonel Holt whilst he was out in the forest. They were talking to each other while this was going on. Um, Conrad was actually standing, looking in the direction that Holt was saying these things were going on with um, Colonel Sawyer, both their wives, groups of other people. They couldn't see anything in the sky at all. And they had a 360-degree unrestricted vision, clear sky, and what Holt was saying he could see, they couldn't see. Right. And not only that, Holt also patched through a message to Eastern Radar, which is the, the RAF station that covers that area, and whilst the objects supposedly was in the sky, they were looking on radar to see if they could see anything. They couldn't see anything. Huh. So how do you explain that? You've got, you've got one group of people in the woods seeing something, talking to somebody else on a, radio, on a radio who's looking in exactly the same direction, unrestricted field of view, clear sky, they can't see anything, neither can anything be seen on radar. That doesn't suggest to me that What's being seen is something that is, shall we say, a physical structured craft. Right. Suggests to me that what's being seen is something that, that Holt was obviously not lying. He was obviously seeing something, and the, the guys that were with him were seeing something. But the explanation to me is going to be, it's got to be that they were seeing something that they could see, but which no one else could see, which suggests to me some kind of mirage, some kind of light that, because they were standing in a certain position, um, I, I can't explain it, but they were they were having some kind of weird experience with a mysterious light, right. which and a mysterious light is not an alien spacecraft. And the way that the story has been embellished is that if you read Holt's original memo, it's probably quite accurate. That's what he saw. He even called it um, unexplained lights. He didn't call it UFOs. He didn't call it flying saucers. He didn't call it extraterrestrials. And you, you look at what he's saying now. He's saying he's convinced these things were under intelligent control. It was a solid object, and that the whole thing's been covered up by the governments of the UK and the USA. That, to me, is the embellishment. He obviously didn't believe that at the time. He's now saying that because he's because he spends all his time in the company of um, well, a lot of his time in the company of ufologists who believe that. Right. And right. and uh, if you spend time with people and you read their literature and you you go on go to their conferences, you're going to come around to the point of view that, that what they're saying is true. Right. It's really natural that that would happen. Do you think anyone was interrogated by OSI in regards well, to this? I, whether I think that or not is not going to make any difference. I mean, from, just, just from talking to some of the people involved and, and examining the chronology, I, I don't think so, no. Mm -hmm. because, because why would OSI be interested in it? Because they would only be interested in it in terms of eliminating whether there was a threat to that base. Right. And, and basically, as far as I can see, the only investigation that was done was by Colonel Conrad, who, who was the second in command below Gordon Williams. And Conrad talked to Williams about it, and they just thought, uh, you know, this is, there's no, 
if we could have, I mean, what he says, what he says is, is that they looked for some solid evidence that they didn't want to put their careers on the line by 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 basically saying, look, something's going on, but we can't, we've got no evidence for it. They 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 sent people out into the forest to look for that evidence, couldn't find it. Right. So as far as they were concerned, that was the end of it. You know, it was just something that they wanted to forget about. So I guess, um, I guess at this point, I'm a double heretic because. I look at Roswell as being like one of the great myth makers uh, in in all of this. I mean, uh, you know, and a lot of people will lambaste me for that. But you know, would you say we're seeing exactly the same thing with Rendlesham? Well, it's not exactly the same thing, um, but it's, it's the same kind of uh, will to believe. And I think I think what happens is people just selectively cherry pick the information that they they like and ignore any contradictory information. And I'm not saying that that's something that's specific to um, to believers. There's the, an the, the equal number of skeptics and debunkers who, who, who ignore evidence that is inconvenient for their argument. But again, I think the um, the, the most objective way of looking at it is, 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 is to try and see it from both, both points of view and to try and divine what the truth is, if it's possible to do such a thing, um, in, in that massive noise and, and, and the best way of doing that and this is how i was trained as a journalist is not to rely upon people's stories that are second third fourth and to go back to the, the original documents as far as it's possible to do so mm-hmm. and in the um the rendlesham case the the original documents and the original testimony are colonel holt's memo um, the, the statements that he took from the different airmen who were involved shortly afterwards, and there's a few bits of paper in the Ministry of Defence file on the case from that period as well, you know, the checks that were done on radar, etc., etc. And they are the primary information. And there's only so much you can get from bits of paper, but, um, you know, the earliest accounts that were given by the people who were directly involved are, you know, you've got to interpret the paper trail in that context, and that's what I've tried to do. And I've tried, I think the more you get bogged down in what people are saying now, years and years later, decades later, the less likely it is you're going to get to the truth, because I think the longer you leave it, and the more people, the more that people tell and retell the stories, the more they go on television to talk about it, the more the story changes and the less likely you are to actually get to the bottom of what really happened. Because I think once people have committed themselves to a story, as they have, as Colonel Holt has now, there's no way in this world that Colonel Holt is now going to turn around and say, sorry, folks, I think it was the lighthouse after all. Right. Why would he do that? That would, that would totally destroy any credibility that he's got. Right. Even if he secretly has thought, Hmm, maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe, yeah, possibly it could have been the lighthouse, or at least part of it could have been. He's not going to say that, because he has now committed himself so much, there is no going back. They're not going to say they were wrong, and that goes for all of them. Yeah, well, I mean, and I don't even look at that as... as. Uh... As so, I mean, it, of course, it's a part of how the myth gets made. It's, po- you know, it, you know, as you say, the background noise or the noise at all over over top of what could be an unusual experience. There's so much misinformation, though. I mean, um, yeah. You know, well, I mean, you- the problem is, is that this field and the public in general, you know, look at the way it operates. It always wants more, uh, and so how long can someone hang around in this field and just say what happened to them, uh, you know, flatly? Like this is it. This is all I've got. This exactly. doesn't like I don't know. 
I found that out real quick. And, and so, and that, that's something, you know, like, like you mentioned Stan Friedman, I mean, God bless him, but you think he's going to turn around and try and see this whole phenomenon in a different way at this point? There's no way. No, I've got, I've got a lot of respect for Stan Friedman, actually, yeah. because he does actually wear, he does actually say very clearly that he believes that there are extraterrestrials that are coming here in solid structured flying craft and visiting us. And the fact that he's willing to say that quite clearly what he believes. Right. Um, fair enough. You know, I've got no problem with that at all. And that's his interpretation. But there are a lot of people who, who don't say that and who hedge their bets and who are talking about structured craft and things, but won't actually say they think that these craft are aliens. Right. You know? Right. right. <laughs> I'm not naming any names, but I think they know who I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, what annoys me. But, but what, what frustrates me is that there are, there are so many um, false um, trails and there are so many myths, myths is actually the wrong word, falsehoods is what, is, is what I mean, about cases like Rendlesham. For, for instance, um, on a, one of the editions of that UFO Hunters program, it was claimed that the uh, the that the Orford Nest Lighthouse was not visible from the um, from the forest. That was said on the program, and okay. having looked at some of the discourse that's gone on on the on the internet as a result of that, that now has gone down in fact in a lot of people's minds. You can't see the, the lighthouse from the forest. Well, I'm sorry, you can see the lighthouse from the forest because I've been there <laughs> several times and seen it, and on occasions it's taken me by surprise. And also, it's got to be said that the light that's at the lighthouse now is a different, it's a dimmer light to the one that was there in 1980. And also the entire forest has changed since 1980. The whole tree line has changed. So if you go there now and maybe you can't see the lighthouse, that doesn't prove anything because the, the whole geography and the landscape of the place is radically different now to what it was back in 1980. And again, it's quite clear from your own reaction when I said this, the, uh, the information about the, the radio, radiation in the forest You've obviously read or, or heard somewhere that that's a definite fact, that's oh, part sure. of the case. Sure. It, but it doesn't stand up to a moment's scrutiny. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but no matter how many times I say this, people will continue to believe that the radiation is a factor, and that's mainly because Nick Pope has said so, therefore it must be true. Well, but nobody thinks to say, hold on a minute, <laughs> how, how, how solid is that as a fact? Right, right. You, you would only have to do five minutes Googling Go on, go on the internet and check those, check that so-called fact, and you'd find that that fact doesn't stand up to a moment's scrutiny. Right. But people don't want to do that because they, they, they want to believe that, that that's the case, that that's the physical evidence that backs up the story. Well, and, and you, you've touched on the operative word there, which is belief. And, um, and that it has become the ultimate frustration for this show, you know, especially when it comes to the whole abduction thing. Is, is this... Uh, you know, you're 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 smashing my belief system, and uh, and I've done uh, you know visual data analysis in this field for going on 24 years this year, and I can't tell you how many times I've been to speak somewhere and uh, and turn around, and after you're done, of course, you get the barrage of people who come up to you after asking questions, and they've got their photographs, yeah. or they've got this or that, and what do you think of this? And I go. Yeah. I, I, I kid you not, I had one in uh, New Jersey. A uh, man came up to me with a photograph of a disc, uh, very elaborate. I mean, very, very elaborate lighting system. And um, and I said, well, I can tell you what this is. He says, you can. Oh, but please, give me the story. And we're standing there in the hallway, and, and I said, this is a prop. And I know 
because it's in a warehouse in Baltimore, <laughs> and I've seen it. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, uh, I know what this is, and so I know where you got this picture. You got this picture from Gentleman X, and he said, yeah, yeah. that's right, and he told me this was from Venus. I said, well, I hate to disappoint you. That's plexiglass, lighting yeah. truss, you know, a thing called a jet eye. If you'd have seen this man's face, I mean, I thought he was going to cry, and yeah. he said, you've destroyed my proof. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, but wouldn't you rather know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and half the time, I think the answer is no. Yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, well, everything you said there, I, I, yeah, I, I, can, I can fully appreciate. I mean, it reminds me of a story that was told um, to me by Hillary, he Hillary Evans, who um, doesn't really have much involvement in um, ufology now, but he, he was very well known in the field over in, in England. Um, until quite recently, but he, he he tells a very similar story about how he'd given a talk at a UFO conference, and, uh, and again, afterwards, and I've had the same thing, you get a big crowd of people coming up who want to tell you about their own experiences, who've got photographs, and, and he was saying there's one particular guy that came up, and he got this photograph, and he said this is this is something that he'd seen and photographed, mm -hmm. and he wanted Hillary to, um, to give him an explanation for what it was, and Hillary, having an encyclopedic knowledge of um, UFO photographs, immediately he looked at it and he knew it was a, a classic UFO photograph that had been taken in New Zealand, I think it was, in the 1950s, and it was that photograph. And this person was, had had this photograph and was saying it, this was something that he'd seen and personally photographed. And so Hillary was saying, well, what, what was I supposed to say to him? Because I, I knew that he'd obviously lifted that from somewhere. Yeah. and was claiming that this was his photograph. I, I knew this was a photograph taken in New Zealand 30 or 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So what, what is going on there? And I think what it is, it's, um, it's what you find, again, this brings me again back to folklore. This is why UFOs are folklore. It's like people, um, when they get caught up in a legend, a story that's told that they want to believe in, people become, want to become part of that legend. They want to feel that they are part of it. And this goes on, I think, in abductology as well. You know, and, and they want, they either consciously or unconsciously, and I think it's unconsciously in a lot of places, they don't actually, they don't actually realize that what they're doing, that, 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 that they write themselves into the story because we all want to be part of that kind of, um, human experience. And, and I, it's, it's, it's the wrong word to use is that they're lying because I don't think a lot of them are, a lot of these people are actively thinking, I am going to go out and deceive somebody. That person who came up to, the, to Hillary with the photograph and maybe the guy that you're talking about, mm -hmm. they probably genuinely believe that, that that is the proof or that they have had that experience and taken that photograph. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's psychology, it's sociology. It's got nothing to do with external aliens. It's a human thing that's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I can see that... Uh the one thing that I've thought about a whole lot is is uh, well, what we see with religion is like there is no there's no part you can play in that. It's a it's a historical thing that you either believe or you don't. And whereas something like this, even if it's uh, even if it's ghosts, which uh, you know, ghost research, which has exploded what in the past five oh, six years. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this gives people, uh, I think, something that is inherent in what people want out of a belief system or a belief or a mystery is they want to be involved in it. So this is like, I mean, for me, I look at ufology in a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people. And I look at them and I go, you're, you're wanting to participate in the unknown. And that's really what it comes down to. Is this, this belief system now has been built over so many years 
And like like we said, to pull one card out is 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 heresy. Now you most recently you're involved with the, the release of these MOD documents on UFOs. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So I would be amiss uh, if I didn't ask how a rat fink debunker like you <laughs> uh, got that job. Uh, I mean, because this is what a lot of people are saying. Uh, I mean, I just read last night, how did this guy get in this position? He's clearly a debunker. Uh, he's clearly uh, MI5. Uh, you know, how did he get this job? Why isn't so-and-so doing it? Uh, the list goes on. So why don't we dispel all rumor and, and you tell us, how did this uh, fall to you? Well, if anyone wants to know how I got the job, all I would suggest to do is just go visit my website and look at the material on there. You know, that the material on my website um, is the product of, like, the last 15 years of uh, research that I've been doing into this area of... I'm fascinated by official interest in this subject. Mm-hmm. And since the late 1990s, um, most of my academic sort of activity, my research has been, has gone into going to Britain's National Archives and literally spending days, if not months, just sat there working my way through all these old documents. Um, I, I'd become a fixture of the place way before they decided to release these documents. I was constantly there. I'm the man who put, piled the pressure on with help from a lot of colleagues um, around the time that Britain adopted the Freedom of Information Act, the, the actual documents that are being released now include whole files on my correspondence with the Ministry of Defence, where I'm saying to them, back um, around 1999-2000, there's literally hundreds of pages of my correspondence with them, with me saying, I know you've got these, uh, these documents, I know there was lots of demand from the public to see them, why don't you release the whole um, set of files that you've got. I will help you do that. I will put some context to it. So I was approaching them back then. You know, far from being a member of um, MI5, <laughs> I'm actually there to get this information out to people. You know, I, I, okay, I might be skeptical of it, but I, I feel that people have got the right to see this stuff. I mean, particularly as a British taxpayer, I've paid taxes for them to compile these files. I think, therefore, I have a right to see them. And that, that is, one of the key things that I campaign for as a journalist. So right from the very early stages, I was working there. I, I was down at the National Archives. Every time a file was opened, because we've got a very archaic system over in the UK where any files or documents created by any government department, in, before we had freedom of information, we used to have to wait 30 years to actually see that bit of paper. Mm-hmm. So every year on the 1st of January, on New Year's Day, um, they would open the files from 30 years in the past. So I was one of the people who used to go down there, and I used to sit and wait for these files to be released. So say in 2002, you would get to see the files from 1972. So that's how I got into looking at these files. I used to go down there every January, and I would go through them, and I would I would pick out all the, U- all the UFO documents, and I would go and I would write these up and write articles on it and post them on the Internet. And I would be using the information that I got, I gathered from those files then to come, to, to, to pile pressure on the Ministry of Defense and say, look, I know you're releasing this stuff from the 1970s, but I know you've got hundreds of files from more recent times. Don't you think rather than hoarding them and then being accused of, um, of hiding material and sitting on material and being involved in a conspiracy, why not be totally open, put this stuff on the internet, release it, let people see it. So 
it, it took a huge amount of time, energy, and work to get that material out. And I find it very galling that having done that, now people are turning around and suggesting that I'm involved in some kind of cover-up. Right. It couldn't be further from the truth. Right. So, um, so that's how I got involved. And, and the very fact that I was, I was there, I was doing all this work, when they finally took the decision in 2007 or whenever it was, that enough is enough, it's costing so much money to to respond under freedom of information to every request we're receiving on UFOs. We're just going to put all the stuff out there. Um, the Ministry of Defence release are releasing the information to the National Archives. These are two separate government agencies. So they are sort of like divesting themselves of the subject. The material is actually going to the National Archives. Now, seen as I'm a journalist, I'm known to the National Archives. I'm constantly there working on this stuff. Mm. It's only completely natural that they would say, this is the guy we need to help us release it. This is the guy we need to sort of um, be our spokesperson, to be our consultant, and that's why I was chosen. Mm. MI5 doesn't come into it. It was a natural choice for them. I am a... I'm a doctor of folklore. I am a journalist. I, I work in writing up archive files constantly. I, I work there, therefore I'm the natural choice. There is no, there's no hidden agenda. There's no, there's no involvement by intelligence services or anything. I am simply a journalist who has, who has piled the pressure on, got this material disclosed, and now I'm working on the, 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 the dissemination and the publicity surrounding the release. That, that's the bottom line, basically. No big mystery. There's only people wanted to make a huge mystery out of it, and at the end of the day, who else could have done it? <laughs> well, let, let who me, else? No, you're right. I mean, you're right. I, I mean, I was the ideal choice, and, and I think yeah. what's involved with a lot of the people who are, who are making these bizarre claims is it, it's pure sour. It's, it's sour grapes. It's jealousy. It's sort of. How come he's got the job and not so-and-so? Well, I got the job because I worked hard to get that position. You know, I put the effort in. Well, and anyone can sit on the internet and gripe about it. You know, right. but what work have they done? You know, why should they have been given the, the job? Right. Well, and, and, and I should also emphasize, I'm not being paid to do this. Right. <laughs> I have not received a single penny from anyone to do it. All I get is my basic expenses to, to, to get a train from Sheffield to London, stay in a hotel while I'm going through this stuff and put it on me uh, and, and actually go down there and do the media work when it's released. I don't get paid a wage to do it at all. Right. Now, I would say to anybody else out there um, who wants to do this, if they want to um, if, if they want to apply to do this job, if they're prepared to um, take sort of, I would say, two, two months or out of their work schedule every year and, and travel over to London and get no remuneration for doing this at all, and and they're willing to do that for nothing. Then please please be my guest. But that's that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm doing it because I think the information is is interesting information and deserves to get to be uh, to release to the public. Well, well, let me let me nip something in the bud because I can already hear what people are are going to say. So let let let, let, <laughs> let me just nip this because this is to me is the important factor here. They'll you, yeah you're not getting paid a dime to do this, uh, David. But of course. He's in the media now, and so his books are going to sell more and all of that. But I would hazard to guess that the time that it's taken to pour through all this stuff, to, to, to do the legwork, to do all of the work, doesn't really hold a candle exactly. <laughs> to, to what you, that you're seeing out of it as far as notoriety you know, or media exposure or that sort of thing. Well, I'll put it to you this way. I would hazard a guess probably, again, that you wouldn't be getting the accusations that you're getting uh, as far as having the job, well, if the, you the, were, um, you know, a good little boy, 
Well, yeah. exactly, yeah. If, if I really wanted notoriety, if I really wanted to make a lot of money out of it, I would not be saying that um, what I'm saying. I would not right. be a skeptic. You wouldn't be giving your opinion, yeah. No, I, I, w I would be saying, yeah, there's proof in these documents that we're being visited by aliens. There's lots of evidence of that. If I wanted to, to get onto the lecture circuit, if I wanted to be fated at UFO uh. conferences, if I wanted to get book conference, uh, contracts, I would be saying exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. Yeah, you, you'd be going down in ufological history, no question about it. I mean, well, yeah, no exactly. question. Uh. But I've got to be honest, and the evidence isn't there. And, you know, I, I don't believe in, in making claims that, that, don't, that don't have evidence to back them up. And anyone who thinks that doing this kind of work somehow uh, makes a profit, that you could live on, on this, is, is deluded. That's the only way I would, that, that's the only word that I can use. Yeah. You know, if, if I actually went back over the last 10 years and, and, I, and totted up the, the amount of um, money that I'd spent, on doing this research, I would, I, it would be literally thousands and thousands of pounds, and the amount I've actually made in terms of, um, you know, book um, uh, contracts and stuff like that would be a, a minute fraction of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let's <laughs> so, be honest. So anybody who thinks there's money to be made out of skepticism is deluded. No, I mean, let's be, let's face it. I mean, the the, the way you make money in this is, and I've been told this from a number of people who have have uh and myself i've seen it on my own uh you know you have to get the next big story uh, of course you do, yeah. I, mean, I mean that's yeah. it and 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 i'll tell you what really uh i'll tell you where my breaking point was and i think where a lot of my own skepticism comes from even about my own experiences it is is going to what was a very well-known researcher who will remain nameless because i don't need that lumped on top of me at this point <laughs> You know, I go to his house, shows me an amazing piece of video. Amazing. And as of yet, I'm yet to see it come out in the media. I've yet to see it on TV. This was amazing. And this is long before the advent of anyone having any sort of computer graphic imaging equipment. Um, it, it, long before it was ever in a consumer's hands. I could not readily explain it. I looked at it for a matter of hours. And I said to him, I said, good Lord, you are calling someone about this. You've got to get this out. And he just sat back in his chair and he said, well, this is what you hold on for rainy days for. I mean, this is what you hold back. <laughs> and I thought, well, there it is. See, I mean, and, and, and you say that, you know, this is not the sort of thing someone can make a living on. I, well, I beg to differ there because I think people have. I think the problem is, is that most of what the career people are putting out is nonsense. Um, and you've got to uh, continue to, to, to bring the heat uh, if you're going to stay relevant in this. And, um, and I think the people who have brought the heat and have brought the new stories over and over and over, it, again, it's in their best interest to, you know, hoaxes don't sell. What sells is we don't know what this is. Yeah. Abject failure is success, <laughs> you know? Yes, it is. It is in a perverse sort of way, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I didn't get in, interested in this subject to make a living out of it. That right. was never that was never my intention. I mean, my profession is a journalist. So why I should be embarrassed to, to sort of go on TV and talk about this when it's my profession as a journalist <laughs> to work with the media, right. I, I find a baffling idea that people would think why is this guy on tv i'm on tv because i am a journalist that's what journalists do we work with the media <laughs> right. why is that so difficult to understand <laughs> uh, 
I believe I share your frustration. Believe me. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's, it's amusing. That's the, the best way to do, the best the best reaction is to laugh because it's the only reaction that you can you can you can have. Let me get back to these files that are coming yeah. out. You say the evidence isn't there, but let me just ask this anyway. What to you is the most compelling file that you've seen come out that you think is interesting? Ooh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> Um, well, there are, there's lots of uh, of interesting uh, files that, that have emerged. I mean, the, the ones that I think are the most interesting are, are the uh, what remains of the very early files from the 1950s, um, when there were quite frustratingly um, quite a few very interesting unsolved cases of things that have been seen on radar. For instance, um, um, the, probably the most famous incident of all is um, from 1956, the Lake and Heath Bentwaters incident, um, which again involved RAF Bentwaters, it's one of the same bases that were involved in the Randlesham Forest um, incident. There was a whole series of cases like that during the 1950s where very unusual things were seen on radar and aircraft were scrambled to, um, to, invest, to go and investigate. And all we've got, because of the policy that the British military had of destroying these files um, every five years, we've only got a few little bits of pieces of paper that have survived by accident as to what investigations were done and what conclusions were reached from that period. Because, again, another thing that came out from the last um, tranche of files that were released in March was that, I'm sure you remember this, there was this thing about some of the, the files on the Rendlesham incident having been destroyed. Correct, yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Well, there's a big hoo-ha that was made about this, as if this was something, um, you know, this was the smoking gun, this proved that something was going on, but knowing as much as I know about the history of these files, there's nothing unusual in that at all, because the, um, um, the policy was up until very recently that um, the, the, the different branches who, who kept files on these things, they regarded the subject as the lowest priority of all. But basically they saw it as a nuisance, that they thought it was a complete waste of their time and a complete waste of public money to investigate UFO sightings. So every opportunity that they had, they would destroy the files. And that's why most of the files in the 1950s and the early 1960s are gone. So a lot of the key incidents, such as the Lake and East Bentwaters case, the sightings that happened in 1952, Operation Mainbrace, there, there is virtually nothing in the official record about those, about those events, simply because all, all the files at some point in the 1960s or 1970s were either incinerated or destroyed. Huh. And that was officially sanctioned. It was like... Nothing, there's been no evidence that has emerged from what we've, from, from the investigations we've done that there's anything we need to worry about from the defense point of view. Therefore, why do we need to keep these mountains of, of paperwork that are not going to be of any interest to anybody in the future? That is what they thought at that time. I mean, of course, we now know that people are fascinated. But how would you know if you were that person in 1961, say, right. When the subject wasn't as widely known, and wasn't, there wasn't as many people fascinated by UFOs as there are today, but if you were an official at the Ministry of Defence in 1960, your filing cabinet was absolutely overflowing with bits of paper about people who'd seen lights in the sky that could have been absolutely anything. You would think, why am I wasting my time with this? Let's just destroy these, these files and you know forget about it. Nobody's going to be interested in another 20 or 30 years' time. Right, right. So people are looking at this from a modern point of view. They're not looking at it from a, as a historian would look at it. 
that the reason the files were destroyed was not because there was anything to hide or that there was a cover-up going on. It was simply that they were so disinterested in the subject that they thought, why do we need to keep all this paperwork? Right. And bear in mind also, this is long before we had electronic storage. There was no such thing as PDFs or scanning documents. <laughs> right. This is full of cabinets, yeah. You had a filing cabinet that was full of paper. When the filing cabinet was, you could no longer force folders into the filing cabinet, then you had to throw out some of the folders so you could put new ones in there. Yeah. And if you had a filing cabinet that was, that was full of stuff on UFOs and you, there was a more important subject like nuclear bombs or troop deployments ab- abroad, what do you think is going to get thrown? It will be the files on UFOs. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I think uh, here's the here's the thing. Like in the defense of people, well, I, I shouldn't even say in, in defense. I should say it seems typical to me that that people would find the the destruction of documents to be highly suspect because didn't we have that with Roswell a little bit? Didn't we have that with the moon landings? Yeah, whichever. So I think for exactly the same reason though. Yeah, well, probably so. I don't know about the moon landings, but I mean, you know, as as far as all of that kind of stuff goes, misplaced documents or destroyed documents. I mean, this is the stuff of X Files. This is what people. <laughs> you, I mean, you know as well as I do at this point that any little thread that can be grabbed upon, yeah, yeah. if it's the least bit suspect, you're a prime example. <laughs> I mean. Look what they've said about you. Now look what. Now take that and flip it around at destroying documents. They're going to take that and say they know something and they're Ooh. keeping it from us. And that's exactly. you know, this, this has been the whole problem with uh, you know the whole exopolitical thing, which don't even get me started. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but another way of looking at the destroyed documents is, yeah, we know that those documents from the early period, the 1950s, 1960s, are, are gone. Mm-hmm. But we do have these documents that from you know the 19 the late 1960s to present which you can now go and look at the release, you can download them, you can look through them. Mm-hmm. Now imagine if it was the other way around, and that it was the early documents that had been um, preserved, and that those documents that we can now see and download had been destroyed. You, right. you, you, I presume you've looked through some of those files, the Ministry of Defense files. I have some, to be honest with you. I haven't looked through a whole lot. Well, there you go, then. You've answered your own question, haven't you? Because if, yeah. those, if those documents, the ones that are now being released, had been destroyed, people would now be saying, what was in those documents? They must have destroyed them for some reason. Right, you know. Right. But we know from looking at those documents now that there's nothing in there. There's no smoking gun. So, therefore, if they had been destroyed, we wouldn't have lost anything in terms of knowledge, would we? <laughs> right. You see what I mean? But yeah. people would then be saying... They must have destroyed them because there was something in those documents they wanted to hide. Mm-hmm. So it, you cannot win that argument. It's a circular argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to admit, you know, when I started reading them, I didn't, I didn't find anything so amazing. I mean, well, uh, <laughs> and unless there's, you know, accompanying video footage or, I mean, I'm a visual guy, so, you know, that's kind of my, my yeah. thing. There was none of that. I didn't, you know, it was like nothing really grabbed me. And I said, well... I don't see anybody else making a big stink about this or saying that there's anything yeah. really amazing here. So am I really going to pour through all this? I got stuff to do. <laughs> I mean, but, but exactly. But, but like, it's like, it's like pe- people have, have decided beforehand what they expect to find in the files. Mm-hmm. And they are setting themselves up for a huge disappointment because whatever they think should be in the files, if that if that information isn't in the files, they will then think, oh, it's all a whitewash. The real files that prove what I believe are being hidden somewhere else. But that is, again, a circular argument. It's non-falsifiable. And, uh, I mean, I remember one of the 
occasions when I went down to meet the Ministry of Defence people and when we were organising the release and preparing for the files to be released, one of the officials that I was dealing with said to me, um, off the record, in a coffee shop when we were talking about this, he just said, look, you know, there is no way we can ever win in this argument. He said, you know, if I went upstairs now into the office where all the UFO files are and I just, I just carried them downstairs, threw them onto the floor outside, piled them up and said, right, these are all our UFO files, take what you want. People would still say to us, ah, but you're only releasing um, what you want us to see. You know, where, where are the other secret files that, that um, you know, that, that really have the smoking gun? And he just said, these are the files. There aren't any other files. This is all we know. <laughs> right. And either, he's either lying or he's telling the truth. And mm-hmm. I think he's telling the truth. I've got absolutely no reason to, having spent the last 10, 15 years working through these files, if I would have, as a journalist, I'm somebody who's looking for an exclusive. I want this, to break the story that nobody else has got. If sure. I'd found a single hint, a single intimation in any of the tens of thousands of documents that I'd gone through that something was going on, that something had been hidden, that somebody was trying to conceal something, I would be shouting that from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm looking for. That's the whole reason I got into journalism, to find that kind of information. Right. You know, And I can only report that I haven't found it. And the only conclusion is, is I haven't found it because it isn't there. Yeah. But that isn't a, an answer that most people want. People want to think, like you just said yourself, they want the mystery. They don't want people to say there is no Santa Claus. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no you, money in that. Yeah, I'll tell you my perspective on the whole thing. I mean, I dumped the the whole government government uh, you know cover up angle about you know more than a decade ago because I just I just came to the conclusion that I don't think they know that much uh, no, about whatever is you know uh, anomalous about this. You know, I, I I think that there is an anomaly here. Okay, my problem is is that everybody wants to approach this thing. The government knows and they won't tell us so on and so forth, and I've asked people at the uh, at the X conference in D.C. You know, when I went there a couple of times, I said, "You're rallying for this government to tell you what it knows and to release the documents and all that." But yet, on one breath, you're saying they've lied to us over and over about all sorts of different things, which yeah. I don't disagree with. But now you're going to believe them about this? <laughs> Are you joking? Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. believe a word that I heard yeah. about this. So, I but, mean, but, that but what is... I don't understand is why do people assume that the government knows the answer? <sighs> Nobody's been able to explain that to me. Why would, why would the government know the answer to something of this kind? I'm you know, not. they don't know. They don't know the answer to global warming. They don't know the answer to to uh, right. solving our nuclear power problems. Why would we assume that they know the answer to to ufology? I, I, I just don't understand why it's assumed that the government well, knows everything about everything. Well, you know, I think when you're talking about, I mean, the stuff that uh, that Hastings brings up when it, you know all these UFOs uh, shutting down nuclear sites and <laughs> Captain Salas, uh, you know, well, that story and. I mean, all of that, that, that's when it becomes a problem of, you know, national security and, it, you know, all of this kind of stuff that Rich Dolan has talked about. And, and my answer to all of that is I just don't care. If they know, okay. Am I going to believe them if they tell me? No. Uh, do I think they know? No. <laughs> I mean, to I me, that is think- the, that's the circular argument to me. I mean, at yeah. least from my perspective, I don't care what they have to say because I wouldn't believe them anyway. But I just so, don't I mean, think that they know. And, it, and furthermore, I don't think they care. 
No, I don't think we do. No, and, and certainly in this country, in, in England, I mean, the, the, this, the government we've got is incapable of, um, of doing anything in a, in a um, secretive way. Everything gets out. Mm-hmm. You know, they are incapable of keeping any secrets, and they are totally and utterly incompetent in everything that they do <laughs> most of the time. So right. why they would, despite the fact that everything else they do is incompetent, why they would be so competent on one subject, i.e. keeping the truth about UFOs from everybody, in such a perfect, seamless way, just beggars belief. Why would they be so good at hiding that and yet so useless at hiding everything else? Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes no kind of logic whatsoever. And, and also, when you look at it in a more global perspective, there is not a single subject that all the governments of the world agree upon. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why is it that one subject, i.e. UFOs, is the only thing that every government in the world has agreed to keep from the people of the world, all completely successfully for the last 60 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it just does not make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, well, I agree with you there. I mean, <laughs> I, And I just don't think there's any, like you, Jeff, I don't think there's any point in wasting time arguing about the government cover-up, because it, you cannot win the argument. People... And, 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 and if you argue against it, you become part of the cover-up, which is the situation that we probably both found ourselves in, you know. It's oh, sort of, yeah. Oh, if, yeah. If you say there is no cover-up, then their reaction to that is, oh, well, you're working for government, you're you would that. say that. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. It, why well, waste any more time? I, I mean, it, this then goes into the realm of there's a shadow government or there's a secret space <laughs> program. And do we really want to go into that circus? I think not. No. Um, I mean, we've already had, uh, you know, a, a NASA guy on the show to talk about the secret space program. His his verdict: there isn't one. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so it 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 all comes down to, like you said, it comes down to the fantasy for a lot of this stuff. You know, we're we're getting towards the end here, but I did want to my last thing for you here, uh, which I do find really interesting. By the way, the Angel of Mons. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just. I just want to read this little snippet here, which is off your website. I think uh, it says in 1914, as German troops advanced through Belgium, they met at Mons with the British expeditionary force. Ill-prepared and vastly outnumbered, the British troops were forced to retreat with little hope of saving the lives of those at the front. It was in these circumstances that many of the wounded and dying soldiers brought back from the Western Front reported having been rescued by strange angelic forms in the sky that protected them from massacre. Mm-hmm. So, what's that all about? <laughs> well, this, this again was a, was a, a very well-known and, and a legend that was believed by um, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people across the world during the First World War. I mean, we look at it now, that, the story that you've just read out, people, if you read that today, you'd just think, oh, that's a quaint story. Nobody, surely nobody believed such a thing, but if you go back to 1914, you look at the uh, English newspapers, that story was the top story. Everybody was talking about the Angel of Mons. Mm. And there was a, it became so popular that uh, it was almost treasonable to doubt it. You know, it, was, <laughs> it, it, it happened to a lot of people. And we know now, I mean, it, it was effectively an urban legend. It, it had no basis in fact whatsoever. In fact, its only basis in fact it, uh, was that the story originated in a piece of fiction that was written by um, an, uh, an author called Arthur Macken, who was a writer of supernatural fiction during that period. It's very, it's very well known in his field. And he was working for a newspaper, the London Evening News, in 1914, uh, right at the beginning of the First World War. This was a time well before the, the Internet and when, when news took a long time to reach 
um, the home front from the battlefield. And there was this, this first battle between the British and German troops, and it should have been a massacre. Tiny number of British troops, huge number of German troops, and you know they managed to sort of um, escape and also hold the Germans back. And the, this this story became wrapped up with this um, piece of fiction that Arthur Macken had written about um, ghostly bowmen from the um, the Battle of Agincourt, the medieval battle, right. appearing in front of the uh, the British troops at the moment, just when they were about to be massacred. These ghostly figures with longbows appeared and started firing arrows at the Germans. The Germans panicked and ran, and managed to the British troops managed to save themselves. It was it, it was a, something he just cobbled together in uh, you know during a lunchtime and, and, and published it in the newspaper. People read it in the newspaper alongside real stories about the battle and thought that this was something that had really happened. And in the process of retelling, you know, we were talking about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Sure. Although it started with the bowmen, it was actually ghostly bowmen from Agincourt. They had become, after about six months of people telling the story and repeating it, and it being talked about in church sermons and this kind of thing, the bowmen became angels. So the bowmen of Mons became the angels of Mons, and that's how the legend was born. Um, but the legend was created simply out of someone's imagination. And then people then came forward and said they had actually seen the angels that they were there on the battlefield and that this, this, there was a huge flash in the sky and a figure um, like a, a man on a horse with a flaming sword had come out of the sky and the Germans had scattered and the British had been able to uh, escape before the, uh, the massacre. So soldiers and, actually came back saying this. It wasn't like they came back saying, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, Well, sort of, yes. It was claimed that some soldiers had said this, but one of the uh, soldiers who said he was there on the battlefield and had actually seen this actually went to um, and swore a legal affidavit to the, to the effect that he had seen the Angel of Mons in, with his own eyes and that Arthur Macken was a liar. He hadn't written the story that this had actually happened in reality. This was all in the newspapers. People believed it. And then a few months later... The, uh, the Justice of the Peace, who'd actually taken this um, this guy's story down in this legal affidavit, he thought, hmm, something not quite right about this. And he went to the recruiting office of the regiment that this soldier belonged to, and he was absolutely horrified to discover that the soldier was actually in England at the time of the Battle of Mons. The regiment hadn't actually departed for France at the time. So... Amazing. Why, why was he saying that? Why did he go to the extent of actually swearing on oath? that he'd seen the angels of Mons. You know, now people might not make the link yeah. with that legend and the stories that we've been talking about in terms of UFO sightings, but to me, there is a link. And it's the same sort of thing that you were talking about, about people wanting to be part right. of a legend. And a legend is simply a story that is told by somebody that people believe. And it's, you know, the Angel of Mons and uh, UFOs and aliens have got a lot of similarities. And, and at the same time, Arthur Macken, who was the actual originator of the story, he was saying in the evening news, this is a story I created out of my imagination. It's not true. And various people were coming forward, including Red Cross nurses who were treating wounded soldiers on the front who were saying, um, there's a government cover-up to hide the evidence of these angel sightings. Well, you know, and that when the war is over, um, uh, Mr. Macken will have to eat his words because we've treated soldiers who've actually seen the aliens and uh, I'm getting angels, angels, angels and aliens mixed up. So do you see what I mean? It, allegations that there was a government cover-up were going on then and people were saying that, you know, they were covering up these stories about angels. Yeah. 
And, and why? And, I mean, why, <laughs> why would you do that? Well, yeah, all it, all it suggests to me is exactly the same sort of thing is going on both today with the UFO stories and in the past with these stories from folklore. Yeah. Which, which, which explains why I was so fascinated by the Angel of Moms and ended up writing a book on the subject. Well, and speaking of, well, for, before I let you go, uh, would you would you consider coming back uh, on the show at some point and maybe we talk a little bit more about the folklore? Yeah, how it sure, applies yeah. to all of this. Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, Jacques Vallée's name came up today, and yeah, it would come really up again. I'd, I'd like to kind of go a, a little bit uh, back and forth with you about uh, his stuff, and, yeah. and you know, passport to Mangoni and all of that. But I, should, I should add, I should add at this point. You know, when you asked me right at the beginning, how did I get involved? Mm-hmm. And I was saying about some of the books I read at the time. Well, well, the books that really influenced me were Jacques Vallée, and more than Jacques Vallée, I would say the person that that really got me interested in the subject was John Keel. Yeah. I was I was absolutely obsessed with John Keel's writings and <laughs> corresponded with him as well at one time. And you know, he was one of the biggest influences. You know, the, the, the Mothman prophecies and. Um, Operation Trojan Horse. That that was the sort of um, UFO material that I was reading when I was a teenager. And here you are today. <laughs> yes, you never escape from this subject. I find oh, you're not telling me anything. You're not telling me anything. I don't know there. You, you, uh, you're trapped for life once you get involved in ufology. God, don't say for life, please. <laughs> At some time, I got to get out of this. Why don't you uh, tell folks where they can find you on the net, where they can get your, your writings and, and, and read your, uh, your further reports on the MOD docs? Um, the best place to go is, uh, well, I've had various websites over the years, but the one I've settled on now is uh, it's simply www.drdavidclark.co.uk. That's my, um, my webpage, and you, you'll see if you go there, it's, it's, uh, it's subtitled folklore and journalism and uh, there are lots of um, links and there's, there's lots of my um, work that I've uploaded onto the website and uh, there are some direct links that will take you to the National Archives UFO page which is where all the uh, the Ministry of Defense documents are being um, uploaded and people will be aware that um, this is not all happening at once the files are, are being transferred in um, in small collections and that's think that the process of disclosure will will uh, will end sometime next year so i think there'll only be another two releases of documents and then the entire process will come to an end oh okay well so and, maybe that will be the uh, time to have another chat uh, absolutely and i can tell folks that um your website link will be on our homepage uh as you listen so you can check that out there and um and 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 check his site out because he's got um some rather interesting writings uh and communications with people involved in the Rendlesham incident that I think people in this audience will find really interesting so do check that out um David uh, thanks very much for being on the show. I mean, we definitely don't agree on every on everything, but uh, well, it would be surprising if we did, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, very... I mean, I I I, I give you um all credit uh, for the work you've done. Thank you for pressing to get these documents out and uh, and and towing the line for that. And I don't think that you've been properly um, uh, thanked for that, but uh, certainly thank you for that. And um, we definitely hope to have you back on the show very soon and um, and and talk with you some more. So, Dr. David Clark, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Paratopia will be right back after this. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. 
That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it. We take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. So the Jer. So the Jeff. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. Reverses fortune. Yay. Jeremy joins us, Paratopia. Oh my goodness, Jeff! I have to apologize to you. You've been uh, you've been a trooper in all of my shenanigans. I've I've been uh, a little off my game this week, folks. I've been traveling, <laughs> and my schedule seems to change by the minute. <laughs> yes, yes. Is there but, a woman, Jeremy? Is that what's going on? Ah, uh, there might be a woman involved. You know, it always seems to work <laughs> that way. That's right. That's right. So, how are you? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing rather well. Uh, I'm just uh, touring the country. I I, uh, I saw Tim Banal of Banal of America. Excellent. About a week ago, Hello, a fine Tim. host. Yeah. Yes. Hello, Tim. Um, but more importantly, no offense, Tim, uh, I had a meeting with Philippe Mora today okay. about the future of our movie project, and it's over. Wait, no. Uh, <laughs> and so it looks like um, Jeff and I haven't even talked about this yet, but uh, he's going to be back in town in about a month. Okay. So we're going to start filming. I, I'd rather be vague about what we're going to do um, on air because I hate for someone to steal it. Right. <laughs> but basically we'll start filming in a month and it will be mostly um, your idea, Jeff. Uh uh, yeah, so that'll be in a month. We'll start shooting that. Oh, and so in, I think, November, he starts shooting uh, the Dolly 3D movie. Excellent. And uh, Alan Cumming will be playing Dolly. Oh, excellent. That's right. Excellent. Formerly known as Nightcrawler from the X-Men. Right. <laughs> what, a, what a role reversal there. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, you missed a good interview, man. Um, uh, yeah, I, I hear. Um, th- so this interview turned you around on uh, the Rendlesham Forest case. Is that correct? Well, it's definitely given me doubts. I mean, whereas I, you know, I had some doubts before, but but only recent doubts. I'll put it to you that way. I mean, for a long while, I've thought, you know, that's a pretty solid case. I thought that was actually really, really well documented and a pretty uh, and and the people seem very. Uh, Stand up. It's not like these are flaky people. I mean, I have to admit, ever since uh, the 30th anniversary came around and, you know, the big speaking engagements and all that, and and then Jim Penniston, who we were going to have on the show at one point, we were talking to him about it, you know, came forth with the whole binary code thing. And I don't know, like, as as I said to uh, Dr. Clark tonight, it's it's just one of those things where I kind of went, what? I mean, what? What? <laughs> And so, you know, he filled us all in on, uh, you know, some other things that, that don't exactly fit the puzzle. Now, that that doesn't say, and he even said this, that that doesn't say that these men didn't have a very strange experience. But the question is, what was it? So I think I, I think he was a good guest in that there's a lot of skepticism in the way that we have skepticism about some of these cases and some of the 
yeah, the stuff surrounding ufology in general. I mean, we have a lot of skepticism on this show about that, um, what it is, how it works, uh, all of that. And we didn't get too deep into a lot of things. It was this was more an introductory issue for him, and um, and that was good. But you know, he is very skeptical, and we certainly don't agree on everything. I don't agree with everything that he said tonight, but. But uh, we're, we're going to have him back, and we're going to go into a little bit more depth, especially with him being a folklorist. I think it'd be a, an interesting show to do. Does Why does Penis, do Peniston and, and the others have an answer to that? Uh, not so far as I've heard. I mean, you know, this was kind of a new discussion for me when I discovered yesterday that he was very into discussing Rendlesham and all of that. That's something I wanted to bring up. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's been any response to it now. All right. Well, in other news, you and I have uh, experienced separate but equal, I don't know, odd uh, sort of poltergeisty phenomena. Yeah. Uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you let everyone know yours? Because I find it funny. I find it funny that you're now attacking this with a curmudgeonly attitude. Oh, it pissed me off. <laughs> in this very room, you know, the media room, the guitar room, whatever you want to call it, I've got uh, a shelving system on one side of the room that is filled with nothing but um, you know, film props and and you know figures from Halo and um uh, Star Wars stuff, Indiana Jones stuff. It's all over the wall. I mean, there's a there's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven shelves there, and the middle section is made up of three very large shelves. I'm laying in here. My wife was reading, so I came in to watch a movie. I was laying down on the floor. I'd say I watched the majority of the movie and. Um, not a word out of the house. I paused the movie. I got up, went to the bathroom, came back, sat down. Probably another 20 minutes to a half an hour later, um, there was this crash. <laughs> you know, I see something beforehand. I'm watching the TV. The shelves are to my left, and I see a dark shape. I almost thought it was my wife coming in, telling me, you're going to bed? What's going on? Because it was really late at that point. And uh, but I instinctively knew it wasn't it wasn't a person. I just I said I'm not looking at it. <laughs> I'm watching my goddamn movie. That's it. So I laid there. I watched the movie, and no sooner did I think I'm watching the movie, crash everything off the third shelf, which is the top shelf, comes wailing down into the floor. Everything. This was not the kind of layout on the shelf that if one figure fell, they would all domino off the shelf that wasn't how it worked but it was literally the shelf was clean and everything had fallen down on top of my guitar processor my amps you know my pedal board everything so uh a hell of a noise and i looked over it did startle me i'm not gonna lie about that it startled the hell out of me and i kind of sat up off the floor and then i just got pissed off and i was like can i even watch a fucking movie and about that time i got up i it hit me what time, and I looked over at what time it was. It was 3.01 on the dot via the Mac. And about that time, as I started picking things up, uh, I have no other way to explain it other than the general air of the room. I interpreted this feeling that I got, which was goose flesh, which even started just before I saw the black mass up near the ceiling. I don't know, this feeling as if, uh, you know... I only get the run of the house. 
at certain times of the day and you should be in bed, that sort of was that sort of feeling. That's at least how I interpreted it. And so um, that was it. I picked up my stuff. I finished watching the movie and I went to bed. I do have to say that even after everything had fallen on the floor and I had gotten pissed off and yelled, as I looked up in that area, there was a kind of a weird mirage I don't know, just strange look about this spot in the air right above this shelf or right, you know, right around this shelf. And so I really didn't, you know, I really didn't. You said it was like a white fog, right? It, it was kind of sh- not sh- shimmery is not a, the right word for it. It's slightly, I mean, I don't even want to say the static. I mean, we talk about that staticky look. It was kind of like that, but it was, uh, it, I don't know, it had a haze to it. And it it did seem to be like an active uh, vibration to it. But I I really don't know how to describe it accurately other than to say kind of mirage-ish looking. And then, you know, it wasn't, you know, a few nights later I'm sitting here at uh, at the computer. I'm checking my email before I go off to bed. And I've got a display cabinet in the right-hand side of the room, which is to my left at this point. And in there is all of my Iron Maiden stuff, all of it, and um, tickets and and belt buckles and figures and all kinds of stuff is in there. Records are in there. And in there I've got a, a big, you know, 20-inch uh, somewhere in time cyborg Eddie. He's all the way against the back of the cabinet. Uh, and he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't stand up. Uh, you literally, I mean, he you lock his feet in place, but he's so heavy that he won't, uh, he won't stand upright on a shelf in there. So I lean him. I lean him against the back of the shelf, uh, and he's very stable. I had uh, little pieces of two-sided tape basically sticking his feet to the glass. I, I, I'm sitting here, and I hear a commotion over in the corner, and the first thing I yell is Indy, my dog, because I'm thinking, what is she dig- digging at over there? Because that's what it sounded like. And uh, I look over, and everything that's in front of Eddie is now pushed to the back of the closet, and and Big Eddie is now slammed up against the, the glass on the front door of the display cabinet. And he's jostling for about a second as I look over, and then he falls backwards. So it's almost like something drove him through the stuff in front of him up against the glass and then let him go backwards. And again, I got pissed off. I said, you break my shit, and I'll get somebody in here to get you out. <laughs> and that was it. That was the last thing. Um there was no, uh, there was no uh, visual for that at all, other than seeing him pushed up against the glass, which could not and should not have been happening. Um, so clearly, whenever I stay up quite late, this is about the same time as well, around two thirty, three o'clock. Clearly, there's a there's a problem. That's what I got, and 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 both of those things to me. There's no way that anyone is ever going to tell me ever again it's my imagination or the heat in the room, I don't know, loosening action figures, joints. I mean, forget it. Forget it. I mean, that was so blatant and so obvious. No one is ever going to tell me again that there's not something in this house. I'm trying to make sense of it. My, I guess my thing um, was weird. I'm, I'm in uh, a, a bed. <laughs> not of my own house, uh, and I turn toward the window. I, like, roll over onto my right side to go to sleep, 
and I shut my eyes, and there's uh, there's the window that I'm that I'm looking at, huh. but in my mind's eye, except uh, except almost like an ethereal version, almost like you would expect, like a ghost would look at the window and see this version of it. Huh. Uh, so I, so I see this with my eyes closed and it, it, again, it's just like I'm looking at the window, except I don't even know how to say it. I mean, it's almost like when we would talk about, um, like you shut your eyes and you see everything in red. Yeah. Like you're still seeing the room, but it's sort of in a murky red. I mean, it was, it wasn't that, but it was like that. I mean, it was more detailed than that. Mm. It was like a Freddy Krueger version of reality or something. It was weird. Mm. Uh, and I'm awake. I mean, I wasn't asleep. I just rolled over to, you know, go to sleep. Uh, and so there are two windows, and the one in front of me is still the window. The one down by the foot of the bed is almost like a doorway, and I can see a stairway behind it. It almost looks like a church or a rectory or something. Hmm. And this old man peers around the corner at me uh, with, I mean, it, just an old dude with, like, you know, white hair, uh a short, you know, like a round head with wispy white hair, like thinning white hair. Huh. Uh, and he's smiling, but I get this, like, evil feeling from him, you know, like something really bad. And I, I, I don't know. I just have a feeling of people in the place, and I'm thinking, oh, please, not a fucking, not an abduction, not something, not now, not here. <laughs> please, no. Um, and as far as I know, nothing uh, happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I sort of I, I just opened my eyes and I was like, I'm not I'm not dealing with this. Hmm. Um, and, I you know, I got up. I decided to get up and walk around and just check out the place. Uh, and nothing seemed to be I mean, this was after a while. I, I got up and walked around and checked out the place because right. for a little while, I was just sort of lying there scared. Like, I don't really want to turn around and see something. <laughs> but I did. I turned around and I looked in the doorway. Nothing was there. Hmm. So I don't know what to make of that, except cut to. um you know, the next day telling uh, the person who lives here and, um, you know, she says that somebody had uh, one day walked home with her huh. like a ghost really? <laughs> that that she and her uh, friend who actually owns the place were walking down the street and they both felt it. But she saw it, saw this guy. And she said it kind of fits the description, except that he was wearing a hat. Oh, um, yeah. And that. You know, he sort of lives in the basement, and one time he tried to come up into the apartment, and she yelled at him not to come into the apartment. It's like, this is my place. You, you know, go fucking stay where you're going to (laughs) stay. So was it that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but interesting, you know? Yeah. Uh, And when I told her about it, um, you know, she, she, they saged the place, Hmm. her and her friend. Um, They have this, uh, I don't know, a CD that, that has some sort of, Native American chanting or something on it and sage and the whole deal. And they hopefully got rid of whatever this is. Huh. Yeah. So I don't know what to make of that, but it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Curious. And I don't know. It's just funny. Cause you know, here it is. The, what you, what you get is what you, what the more you give, the more you get or whatever. Right. I mean, yeah. it's like, we've been talking about demons and I had the sense of a demon. Uh, when I was in Niagara, I talked about that, right? Yeah, when we were in Niagara, and I had this, uh, you know, this this nightmare that that would have just seemed like a nightmare, except that my meditation energy was clearly active, and when I, you know, was pulsating between my hands and my chest, and when I pulled my hands away from my chest, uh, I felt this energy recede back down and into me, um, and the the nightmare was was definitely about a demon. Uh, 
Um, you know, and it was one of those really lucid, just awful, like you have to get up and walk around nightmares. So in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I, 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 I'd said, uh, you know, I'm going to release this new book. And once I do, you know, then what am I going to do? Am I going to go become something else or whatever? And so in my little beady head where I'm a narcissist and the world revolves around me, uh, I'm thinking like there's something watching me waiting to see what my decision is or waiting to see what I'm going to do next, you know? Like that's kind of the feeling I get, but that could just be my own feeling, and especially if uh, if what I, I experience here is, you know, some dude who lives in the basement now. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. So I don't know what to make of any of that, but there it do is. with it what you will. Yeah. There it is. And, you know, it's interesting. I just wanted to comment on demons for a second because – uh, there's been some chatter and, uh, from Brad, especially in our message board about, you know, talking about the jinn. You know, why is it okay to say jinn or interdimensional, you know, invisible people, but not angels and demons? Uh-huh. And why do we have such a problem with angels and demons? And, we, you know, we come up against this every now and then, right? But to me, follow me on – tell me if you follow this, Jeff, or if, if, you, if you find this to be true. It's like angels and demons are – we don't know – what that means, uh, you know, the the sort of shallow end of it is, you know, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other, or, you know, playing a harp or whatever. Then there's the Christian version of like this sort of sky war going on, right. uh, you know, between God and the devil. And then there's also whatever the hell Milton added, you know, it's like you've got like the Middle Age version of demons uh, and then and then the, you know, the levels of hell. Um, that fiction authors added in. Uh, so it's it's hard to say, like, you know, what is our picture picture of a demon? What is demonology at that point? It's a mixture of fiction. It's a mixture of religious. Um, and it's kind of a, another catch-all that just doesn't do anything for me and smacks of um, Christianity. Uh-huh. Uh, because I think it, it's kind of hard to separate that out when a Christian says, well, d- why don't you consider demonology? It's like, well, I would consider consider demonology, but not the Christian version. Like, that doesn't – you know what I mean? Like, because I think that's what they mean. Yeah. But I don't know that I buy that. I mean, because there are so many uh, – I don't know. We would just have to look at, like, different systems. I mean, Buddhist demon. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, there's a dog that keeps handing me toys. <laughs> really wants to play with me. Uh, we would have to consider, you know, Buddha's demonology. Uh, what do the Hindus say? What do, you know, because there are these sort of like fleshed out, it seems, characters uh, that we find in all of these different religions. And the least fleshed out, it seems to me, is Christianity. It's like you've got this Satan character, right? And you've got a couple of peripheral characters that are talked about a little bit here and there. But there's no like real demon world that's fleshed out in the same way that you get with uh, some of these other traditions. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's worth looking into on that grander scale in the same way that the jinn are worth looking into. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like you say, even the jinn is just another sort of placeholder for we don't know. Yeah, it's just another envelope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can, so, you can always regulate all of it to some sort of negative. I mean, why would we do that? Like, why do we care? Why, why, why care about like which which placeholder we use? Whether you say demon, jinn, alien, trickster. Well, because I mean, they're, they're poisoned words. I mean, they all attach some sort of peripheral meaning to them. That's why. I mean, they've all got their own trappings of what they're you know ball and chain to. And you know, and some people have a problem with angel or demon or whatever. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there, I, you know, it, it came up because Phil and Brogno, it seems, is like, well, I wouldn't believe in angels and demons. But now here's my story of the djinn. Right. And I get, I get what they're saying. It's like, it's like, why believe in one and then poo-poo the other when both are equally inconceivable? Mm-hmm. Except that the djinn, again, I guess it goes back to me. It's like the djinn, like Buddhist demonology, uh, has a fleshed-out story to it. There's a backstory there. There are these invisible people and... You know, it seems like there's a story anyway, whereas Christian demonology is just like, there are these demons, see, and they're evil, and they'll do anything to trick you. Right. And it's like, well, that, so? Like, what does that mean? Where do they live? What What are they doing right now? Right. You know what I mean? Like, there, ha- I don't know, there has to be some sort of mythology or some sort of backstory to them for them, for me to even consider them. It can't just be a placeholder for a placeholder, <laughs> which is evil, you know? Right. We don't know what evil is, so we say demon. It's like, well... All right, that does nothing for me. Jin does a little bit more for me because, again, there's some sort of thing there. So, uh, but it doesn't do a hell of a lot more for me. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it just I mean, seems more plausible. I, the the Imbrogno version seems more plausible. It's like, well, you've got these jinn, see, and well, and uh, they would say that they're jinn. I would say that they're interdimensional beings. Right. Right. And but you can't really say that with Christian demonology because. There's no beings there to, to speak of. It's just a placeholder for evil and why evil happens. It's not a placeholder for the shenanigans of a seemingly other intelligence interacting with us uh, that we might be able to explain through new physics. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference there to me. Hmm. You think you'd be able to explain Jin through that? Yeah, I think you could explain Jin through that. Now, whether that means that it's true or not is a whole other question, you know? Yeah. I mean – so what if you can explain Jin through that? You can, you can only explain Jin through that because, again, it's a fleshed out uh, mythology. Invisible people who kind of come here now and then who hate us because, you know, we took over the earth when they left and God said, you've got to, you know, help us. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'll that's, put it to you this way. I've seen less of the uh, uh, of that material than I have, you know, the 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 fleshed out notion of what a demon is and, and what fallen angels are and all of that. And I mean, oh, well, then maybe as, I just don't you know. know. Then maybe that's my own, then I just don't know. Like where would I go to find fleshed out, uh, Christian demonology or, or whatever, what a demon is, where it comes from. Well, I mean, you know, the, the whole biblical thing, <laughs> you know, if that holds sway at all, I mean, there, yeah, but the biblical thing, I mean, am I wrong in thinking that there's not a lot in there? I mean, I mean they, they don't really talk about, it's just like fallen angel has an army. Yeah, well, I mean, does that, that, that would that would have to go into you know Dead Sea Scrolls and that translation. Everything is translation. This is the problem I have with all of this old ancient stuff. I mean, it's you know the jinn. Yeah, we we've got this fleshed out thing, but where does that fleshed out thing come from? You know, and how was that interpreted? And could it have been misinterpreted? And we don't. There's no origin for it. I mean, it's like I said. It's it's another envelope that we can say, oh, we can call it this. Well, that's great, but where's the origin of this come from? You know, where's right. the original report, as Dr. Clark would say? I mean, that's that's the problem to me. And the same goes for demons. I mean, we could, you know, you could talk about the, you know, the archangel Lucifer and, you know, being envious of the Godhead and trying to take over a war in heaven. They're cast out. Now they exist, you know, in hell, whatever that means. The only thing that the djinn have on that is they're in this parallel dimension or so. It, we've been informed of is that an act but even buddhist uh, but know. even buddhists have levels of hell i think mm-hmm. like seven levels of hell mm-hmm. 
So to me, that's, you know, already, like, you can go into that and you can look at, okay, what what makes up these different levels? Uh-huh. And they have it all mapped out. This is what they are. Um, is there anything like that in Christianity where it's like, well, what's hell? Well, hell is whatever uh, Milton added. Right. Yeah, no <laughs> it's idea. fire and brimstone. Yeah, yeah it's, it's this fictionalized thing that was added much, much later by, by a fiction writer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that heavily influenced how we think about it. Yeah. So to me, it's there. There's a world of difference there now. Whether either of them represent reality, uh, yeah, it's a whole other deal. You know. Yeah. Can you know? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. That's for an upcoming show. I don't know. I just don't. I I guess I just don't see a, a reason to get up in arms over or, or concerned about, uh, you know, whether someone says, "Well, I I don't believe in demons, but I'll believe in gin. Gin makes more sense." I mean, hmm. neither of them make sense. <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day yeah. yeah that's kind of the point yeah yeah well jeremy we are out of time well jeff it was a, a good show t- for me this week uh it certainly was you didn't do anything okay jer so that's it for this week all righty uh sorry again everybody that it was uh, a day late hopefully it was not a dollar short definitely not um, and thank you, Jeff Richman, for picking up my slack. Certainly. And we will see everybody next week. Out! <laughs> <laughs>